The reading is going to be in Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 18, so that will give you a moment to, to find it. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that he has that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although, although they knew God, they didn't honour him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonouring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonourable passions, for the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they, d they not only do them, but give appropriate uh, approval to those who practice them. Amen. Shall we pray uh, before turning back to that uh, reading together? Father God, we thank you that we can come before you this morning in your presence uh, together, knowing and expecting that you're here with us and that you have kept us this week and that, Lord, you now would speak to us. So, Lord, as we come to your word, we ask that you would help us. We ask that you would help us, especially as we know in more sense, as we've heard this reading, some of these words are difficult. These words are difficult to sort of take in and to process. So, Lord, help us. I pray to be able to uh, hear your voice and to be able to see what you would say to us. In the Spirit, we pray that you might bring life to these words within us, that you might work within our souls. We pray for our good and for your glory, we ask it. Amen. If you keep that reading open there with you, if you can, um, you'll find that really helpful. 
Um, I wonder if you've ever had the experience of maybe a test or an essay or a dissertation perhaps you were writing or something and you had such sort of high hopes for it for yourself and then maybe just found that you didn't quite sort of meet those expectations. You have that sort of disappointment that you thought you'd done so well and then maybe it turned out you didn't do quite so well as you hoped. Well, this passage might do that for us maybe clearer than any other of humanity's deluded idea of how good we think we really are and the reality. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the Welsh preacher, puts it like this, this difficulty that we have really to reconcile this. He says, you will never make yourself feel that you are a sinner because there is a mechanism in you as a result of sin that will always be defending you against every accusation. We are all on very good terms with ourselves and we can always put up a good case for ourselves. Even if we try to make ourselves feel that we're sinners, we will never do it. There's only one way to know that we are sinners and that is to have some dim, glimmering conception of God. And we see it in the real world around us, don't we? We see it in a government who can't bear to be honest about what's happened to the point that people will defend the Prime Minister by saying that he was ambushed with a cake. I mean, from my very limited experience of ambushes, that seems to be an incredibly polite ambush. Uh, I didn't realise he had that many friends. Uh, it doesn't feel like it when you hear people talk about him, but uh, there we go. Poor Prime Minister having to dodge people presenting him with cakes. There's a ludicrous nature to it, isn't there? Ambushed with cake because they can't bear to admit what's really happened. Don't we all find ourselves somewhat in that position sometimes? It starts to become clear here at this point in Romans that the gospel is presenting us with a very different worldview, a very different message to that what we hear in the world. And Paul is transitioned here. He's set out in his introduction a little bit about the sort of purpose and nature and power of the gospel. But now he makes a logical sort of shift in verse 18 from verses 16 to 17 to really address the problem of humanity. So before we get really to the depth of the good news, we find that it gets very, very bad. And Paul will systematically work through different groups showing that we all have the same kind of sins, really, the same kind of unrighteousness, the same kind of need, whether we see it or not. Paul is now going to shift the question here to why you would need saving. It becomes clear this is a different message to the world if we could attempt to sort of summarize the sort of general sort of feeling the general sort of message the general sort of spirit of the age the sort of zeitgeist it might say something like this that the world's condition uh, the world is basically on the brink of disaster and worse than it has ever been that the world's problem is in essence that the world suffers under poor systems and leaders and that the only sort of hope for a salvation for the world is a sort of virtuous remnant who can deconstruct and then reconstruct society in a different order. It says about the human condition that people are basically good in their authentic self except some sort of bad people and 
the human problem really is not being able to be my authentic self and not being sort of accepted for that if only the world would do that so the sort of conception of salvation is well if only I can be sort of freed from that sort of judgment and restriction that stops me from being who I really want to be the gospel on the other hand gives a completely different message it says that the world's condition is that it's full of God's glory and yet also far from its original perfection. That the world's problem is that the world groans under the curse of sin that has fractured everything. That the hope of the world's salvation is God returning to his earth to renew and to restore it to its original perfection. That on the human condition, people are not basically good, but are by nature sinful. That the human problem is that my authentic self is tarnished by sin. It is conflicted. It harms myself and others. And that the hope for salvation is that I actually need to be saved from who I am to be who God has made me to be. To put it in slightly more sort of fancy terms, the sort of philosopher uh, Rousseau in The Social Contract wrote that man was born free and everywhere is in chains. Sort of a way of saying that the hope of salvation is to be who I really am, but I don't get to be who I really am because the problem of this world that judges me and restricts me from doing that, if only I could be freed from that, then I'd be free like I should be. The gospel instead says man is born enslaved to sin. But Christ came to set us free. And so that's what we'll begin to see as Paul leads us through these next few chapters. So turn with me there to uh, verses 18 to 23. And the first thing I want to show you this morning is the wrath of God contrasted here with the rebellion of humanity. Sometimes it's only actually when uh, you see a really awful example of something, you can realise how good something else is. There's sometimes something of that contrast, that in seeing something so amazing, you realise how bad something else was. Or seeing something so bad in comparison to something so good, you realise the difference, don't you? Found uh, a couple of amusing sort of examples on the internet. Uh, I, th- I think the first one here is a SpongeBob SquarePants cake. See a fantastic example there of uh, no doubt a professional sort of uh, baker and then, uh, you know, a home effort that uh, is not very impressive, is it, to be fair? Or perhaps, you know, uh, Theresa May's dance moves. Put in comparison then with the professional dancer, you really see just how bad uh, she was. Uh, Or perhaps if you manage to catch it sort of through lockdown, this sort of cover version of About a Girl by puddle of mud put in comparison with Kurt Cobain's sort of fantastic sort of vocal performance it's only then you realize how bad it really was Tom Schreiner the commentator puts it like this the revelation of God's saving righteousness exposes the full wickedness of human sin and the depth of God's wrath against it Paul makes his first major transition of the book here for verse 18 for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And it follows on necessarily from verses 16 to 17. He's told us there, I'll remind you of it again, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it's written, the righteous shall live 
by faith. And now he makes this transition here. The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. And yet the wrath of God is being revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness. Outside of receiving the righteousness of God through faith, we face the wrath of God for our unrighteousness. That's the problem that the gospel answers, that Paul gets to in short, sharp shrift here. We need that righteousness that is not our own, precisely because of our natural unrighteousness. This is what the gospel addresses. Paul is so hopeful and confident in the gospel, not ashamed of it, believes it to be the power of God for salvation because in it, it reveals the righteousness of God granted to you because otherwise, verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, which is your state apart from being in Christ. And this is now the crisis that Paul explores between verse 18 here in chapter 3, verse 20. And he anticipates, just like in 2022, we will certainly have those who may say, am I really that bad? Paul shows us that sin is a subversion, a distortion, an insurrection against the gracious order of God's creation. And that's the terms in which Paul puts this, these few verses here. It's put in the context and in the light of that creation story. The commentator, Morna Hooker, a professor, puts it like this. Paul was portraying man's sin in relation to its true biblical setting, the Genesis narrative of the creation and the fall. And we see that here. We see three ways here in these verses that uh, humanity does this. Firstly, they suppress the truth. Look at verse 18 to 20 there. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, um, who by that unrighteousness suppress the truth, we're told. So the problem isn't a lack of information. That is not man's problem. The solution to the problems of humanity is not education, I'm sorry to tell you. If only, if only it were as simple as that. You just educate people and that would be enough. It's not. There's no lack of information that's the problem. There's a suppression of the truth. Look at verse 19. It tells us why that is. How can it be that we suppress the truth? What can be known is made plain because God has shown it to them. There's an interesting caveat to put on that, isn't there? What can be known, because you can't know everything, and God doesn't reveal everything to you, but what can be known is made plain. The word there in the Greek is graspable. It's the same word that John uses at the beginning of his gospel, that that Jesus came in flesh, the word became flesh, and made God graspable. Gives you a handle to get on him, to try to at least partially understand him. What can be known is made plain, because God has shown it to them. And there's this wonderful thing that God in his generosity and his grace, there's a general revelation. As well as God revealing himself more fully to some special revelation, saving revelation that those of us who know and believe and trust in Christ have experienced, God also reveals himself to all people to some extent. 
That is, firstly, he, he doesn't hide himself from some people. He reveals himself, to some extent, to all people. God has shown it to them, Paul tells us. But secondly, he doesn't reveal all of himself to all. What can be known has been made plain. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. How have they been perceived? Well, in the things that have been made, Paul tells us. In the things that have been made, we perceive God's power, his eternal nature. How do we see that? Well, we see it partly in the beauty of creation, don't we? The sheer beauty of the earth that we live in. Flawed though it is because of us, there's still such wondrous uh, beauty in the world. We see it in the sort of complexity of the world. We see it in that complexity even from the single cell upwards. We see it in the crazy sort of impossible maths that's involved in the earth's existence and continuance. And even to begin to attempt to explain away God the kind of ridiculous levels you have to get to of those numbers. And you see it in the world's fundamental coherence. There's a coherence to the earth and to the world and to life. And there's an ability for humans to perceive it to at least some extent, which reveals there must be a God who has put that order in. Even Descartes recognized that and admitted that. that There must at least be a God who sets it off for there to be any sort of notion of the world being able to be rationally understood. We see through the things in the world is divine nature. So they are without excuse. They know enough to not be able to say, we didn't know. Suppress the truth. Secondly, humanity rejects the truth. Look at that in verse 21. It's a clear rejection of what they actually innately know. Because it's an inconvenient truth. Although they know God, they didn't honour him as God. Or give thanks to him. They don't want to recognise or to worship him. And it has consequences. Look at how it follows on there. It has consequences. Senses become dulled. This is always the way, by the way, that throughout the Old Testament, idolatry is put. That you become what you worship. And as Israel is tempted again and again, just as the world around them, to worship idols who have no senses, who have no power, don't speak, don't see, don't live, gradually they become like the gods they worship. Unable to hear, unable to perceive. Having ears, they don't hear. Having eyes, they don't see. The senses are dulled. They became futile in their thinking, we're told. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Rejected the truth, they suppressed the truth. And thirdly, pursued after other gods. Verses 22 and 23. This is worked out finally, this rejection of God in the pursuit of other gods instead. Because, functionally, there are no atheists. That doesn't exist. Everybody worships something, even if it's themselves. There are no functional atheists. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds and animals and reptiles. You see that exchange, the immortal God for mortal things. Follow other gods. 
Not only does humanity reject God, refusing to worship him, they receive other gods and freely worship them. There's no lack of information. So the solution isn't simply education. It's not a slip-up. So the solution isn't just a coach. And the issue is ungodliness and unrighteousness. Firstly, it's unrighteousness. That there is actually a right conduct and therefore wrong too. That through commission, things that we do do, through omission, things that we don't do that we should, whether it's conscious or unconscious, we don't meet. But the world says, you know, I don't need God to be moral, which makes morality subjective and therefore kills it by nature. The second that morality is subjective in any way, it doesn't exist. It must be objective to be worth anything. And we see it all around us. You see it in intellectuals, but you see it in pop culture. This is uh, Nigella Lawson, TV chef. Uh, I was brought up an atheist and have always remained so, but at no time was I led to believe that morality was unimportant or that good and bad did not exist, and I'm somewhat confounded by being told I need God, Jesus, or a clergyman to help me to do so. Well, doesn't like to hear that there might be a right conduct and a wrong one. The problem of sin is partly unrighteousness, of not doing what is right. But secondly, it's about ungodliness. It's a rejection of God, our creator. Again, Martin Lloyd-Jones explains this. He says, the kind of person who says that, as he talks about people who say, I don't really know that I'm a sinner. I don't really feel that I'm what Paul's describing here. So the kind of person who says that is really saying that he or she has never faced the question of godliness and the terrible sin of ungodliness. They've never seen that the first sin, the very essence of sin, is ungodliness. There is no greater sin than to feel as you are, unaided, you are fit to stand in the presence of God because it means that you have no conception of the glory and the majesty and the holiness of God and that in itself is sin of the deepest dye. It means then that you have a little God of your own which you have conjured up in your own mind, a God who is more or less like yourself. It's the wrath of God and the rebellion of humanity. But secondly now, we get sin pictured in three different ways here. And firstly, Paul pictures it as a heart sickness. And we know this feeling in everyday life where sometimes our hearts want the wrong things. And that's the essence of it here. That just because we want things doesn't make them right. We often want things very much that are of no good for us. Really, I, I think that's the only way to try to sort of rationalise, you know, deep-fried cream eggs. Uh, that somehow there's this heart sickness somewhere that we want things that we must surely know are in no way good for us. And are going to offer nothing to us. Surely it's the only thing that can rationalise the amount of hours that is sort of uh, plunged into Facebook stalking uh, for people. Surely it doesn't bring any enjoyment or pleasure or perhaps listening to Justin Bieber. It's about the only way I can sort of try to figure out why it is a thing that sometimes we want things that are of no good for us. We sort of know sometimes that there are things that are no good for us, but we want them. And we also still know 
we're definitely going to do them. And actually it happens on a much more serious level too, doesn't it? That's where we form harmful habits, invest in doomed relationships, or pin hopes on finding positions that will never deliver. The Bible speaks of this. Proverbs 4, verse 23 says, Guard your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Jeremiah 17, we read that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Sin is a heart sickness. Therefore, we're told that is because of humanity's rejection of God and refusal to worship him, in verses 18 to 23, Paul follows on from that. Therefore, God gave them up. And it's worth us just pausing there just to ask what that means. What does Paul mean by saying that God has given people up to sin? The word there is paradidomai in Greek. It means it's from two Separate words, para, close by, didomi, to give. They've moved from close to God to away from God. God in his grace actually endures great sin, rebellion, betrayal, infidelity and heartbreak. In his mercy at times, actually he holds us back from calamity, from our self-sabotaging sin. But beware, sometimes also, He lets you have what you want. Commentator says here, he, God, that is, ceased to hold the boat as if it was dragged by the current of the river. He gives them up. How can God be righteous and yet also give people up? It's that sometimes the greatest judgment God can give isn't the punishment for doing things wrong, We imagine that God's judgment would always be punitive. That he would put us on the naughty step. That some things would go wrong for us. But here, Paul reimagines God's judgment and saying, well, what about the times in which God judges us by letting you have what you want, even though what you want is not what you need and is no good for you? God gave them up. It's the same phrase, by the way, and I think Paul knows this as he does this, that's used of Israel's enemies throughout the Old Testament, God giving them over to the people. Now used of individuals rebelling against God. He gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. God hands them over to a sin they already wanted and were already caught in. John puts this phrase, I think maybe it's... um, easier at least in my mind to understand than Paul's phrase here the lust of their hearts to impurity John puts it that sin is like the lusts of the flesh things that make you feel good or lusts of the eyes things that look good to you and yet of course never deliver do they he gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity to the dishonouring of their bodies following the false promises of sin always leads to devaluing and dehumanizing yourself and others and we see that in the world around us don't we bodies are seen as things we possess that we use for our pleasure 
not a gift from God to steward. Why does this happen? Well, Paul tells us in verse 23, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than creator. And we could summarize it by saying that people are happy to have the things God makes, but not the God that made them. That they exchange the truth for a lie. And in worshipping other created things, it, it leads to being ensnared by desires. Our desires are so often self-destructive. They're for things that ultimately make us less, not more human. And our desires never fulfill. And so we keep needing to go back to the well for just another hit. Sin is a heart sickness. But secondly, sin is seen in the dishonoring of the body. You see that in verses 26 and 27. For this reason, and again, Paul is referencing back to verses 18 to 23. Because of that rejection of God, then this. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Women exchanged natural relations with women, and men exchanged natural relations themselves too. <laughs> This is the subject in 2022, guaranteed to raise anger, isn't it? It makes the very point that Paul's already made, their passions of the flesh. There's an element to it that's wrapped up in heart, in these deep-seated sort of desires and feelings. God gave them up to dishonorable passions, strong Feelings not guided by God. There's some things we could say here in conversation with the world around us. Because you want it does not mean it's right. It's given them up to dishonorable passions. That Paul tells us here are not natural, not the order that God has established. Because you want it does not make it right. Yet the world says... You should have what you want. Isn't it? Secondly, we say, you don't get to decide what's right. Going from Paul's logic here, you don't get to decide what's right. How would you know? Humanity has given up what is natural. You don't get to decide what's right. And yet the world will say, you should decide what's right for you. What's right for you is right. Thirdly, we could say here that God has established an order over sexuality as well as the rest of life. And the world will say in conversation, well, the only order really is the one that we make. But we could also fourthly say that sexuality has a purpose beyond our pleasure. Whereas the world will say, do what makes you feel good. What more is there? All of those things come together to show how in sin, humanity kicks back against God to go their own way. And here's the problem in that whole conversation. All of those things that the world says, you should have what you want. You should decide what's right for you. The only order is the one that you make. You should do what makes you feel good. That all makes sense in a way. If you believe that there simply is no other purpose to your existence, then what you make. But if we, as we do, 
believe that actually, no, fundamentally, there is actually a purpose to human life and existence. Purpose given and directed by God. There's really the essence of our disagreement. We can talk about the behavioural things at the end of it, but in a way, you never get to the root of what the actual problem is, of saying, actually, no, fundamentally, I am not my own. That's, that's where we disagree. I am not my own, even for me. <laughs> even before I begin to speak of you, I am not my own. It's not to me to decide who I am. It's to me to be who God has made me to be. There's our difference, I think. Gave them up to dishonorable passions, receiving in themselves, we're told here, the due penalty for their error. God's judgment, as we've said already, at a certain point, is to let you have it. And that having that thing in and of itself, in its hollowness and emptiness, is a judgment. There was a few years back uh, now, there was, there was uh, a, a really bad sort of period of flooding. And uh, I can't remember what part of the country it was. And, you know, a bishop had come out and said, well, perhaps this has particularly affected us in this area because we, we have a lot of uh, homosexuality in this constituency. Uh, and you can imagine sort of how that went down. That was in the sort of national newspapers. According to Paul here, I don't, I don't think that's true at all. They receive in themselves the act, the life itself, its hollowness, its emptiness. That's God's judgment. The fact that it will never really satisfy you the way you think it would is his judgment. Sin has a way of manifesting in our use of our bodies, whose natural and created orders are subverted and distorted. Sin is a heart sickness, it's seen in the dishonouring of the body, and then lastly, it's a mindset against God. Forgive me if you're not sort of a football fan, but I think just the character and the story is enough for you to understand my point. I've got hopefully there a picture of Mario Balotelli. He is perhaps the archetypal sort of example of someone crazy talented, but also a bit playing crazy too. Uh, this is a guy who wound up setting his house on fire because he set off some fireworks in his bathtub, uh, amongst many other sort of crazy stories. Uh, but incredibly talented at the same time. And Jose Mourinho, one of his managers, gives a story of trying to get into Mario's mindset and trying to help sort of shift him and, and get the best from him. He talks of him having got a yellow card just towards the end of uh, the first half and he has no other players to bring on they're really badly affected by injuries so he says you know I spent 14 of the 15 minutes of the team talk speaking only to Mario <laughs> he said I can't change you Mario I can't make a change I don't have a striker on the bench don't touch anybody when we lose the ball no reaction if someone provokes you no reaction if the referee makes a mistake no reaction. Mario, please. One minute into the second half. <laughs> Red card. <laughs> A mindset on its own thing. You try as hard as you can, you can't quite crack it. Sin is a mindset against God. 
Since they didn't see fit to acknowledge God, and again, Paul is referencing back to verses 18 to 23 there again, because of that, then this is the consequence. Since they didn't see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. And the, the word there, maybe actually the, the best word could be unfit, so that Paul is making a pun. Since they didn't see fit to acknowledge God, it gave them an unfit mind. He gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. And this is a very, very polite way of Paul transitioning into this next little uh, list here of different negative, destructive traits in verses 29 to 31. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. Paul has begun there in verse 18, hasn't he? But saying that the wrath of God is revealed against all uh, unrighteousness and ungodliness. And now he's going to give us some concrete examples of that, just in case he was still a little bit on the fence and wondering whether he's sort of maybe uh, being a bit hyperbolic here. And so he gives us 20 further qualities that are produced out of sin, that contribute to the sort of breakdown of relationships that we see in human life. It's still, as long as it is, and painful as it is to hear, not actually exhaustive. But I think he hopes that he'll catch you with at least one uh, at some point in there. And the point he'll make for us here is how you think will shape what affects your heart, your fears, your loves, your motivations. And that will direct how you behave. So you'll say later on in the book, verse uh, chapter 12, don't be conformed to this world, unrighteousness, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind into righteousness. That your thinking has to change for your behaviour to change consistently. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, i.e. that humanity knows that there must be some consequences to this. Here's the thing about rebellion. At a certain point, you just don't care. It doesn't start like that. It happens by degrees. But at a certain point, you stop caring. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. There's an action and approval to it. There's a counter-culture against God. They not only do them, but give approval isn't that our world? Isn't, isn't that the message? Do whatever works for you, as long as you don't hurt anybody. That's subjective. Subjective, isn't it? They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Maybe wondering, perhaps, this is all a little bit dark, a little bit harsh things really this bad as Paul just had a bad day Charles Hodge commentator it's as dark as the picture he had drawn is it is not so dark as that presented by the most distinguished Greek and Latin authors of their own countrymen sadly none of what Paul was saying was actually news it was known it was lamented and you can read just a cursory read through history and find it 
cycle after cycle, generation after generation, empire after empire, the same things, nothing new under the sun. The same rebellion against God. Unrighteousness affects every area of life for the rebel. The mind, the body, the heart. And it incurs the wrath of God. Paul has begun here speaking primarily to Gentiles. And as the Jews would have been sort of sat there hearing this because these are primarily sins really that would affect Gentiles, not so much Jewish people who were respectable, well-ordered. You know, the problem wasn't uh, lack of rules. It's, it's the other end of the spectrum. And, you know, they'd be sat there and you maybe know this feeling, you know, as a sibling is sort of getting told off or something and you're nodding along and loving it. Yeah, absolutely. Until you start to realize, uh-oh, this is turning back on me. <laughs> this train is changing directions and actually all of a sudden I can see where this is heading. I, I, I'm in, in the way here too. And this is exactly what is happening here. Paul is writing primarily to Gentiles, but really he's writing to rebels. He's writing to those in this moment who really have turned their heels against God. And righteousness affects every area of the life of the rebel, mind, body, and heart, and incurs the wrath of God. The first step of Alcoholics Anonymous says, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol and that our lives had become unmanageable. Paul wants the rebel to realise their situation and to own it. They are powerless and their life is unmanageable. Apart from Christ, this is the grim reality that we face. The first step then is honesty. This is where I have been. This is what I have become. And yet, Paul has hope. Because we turn back to those couple of verses before this section that led this off. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Because although our unrighteousness is here revealed in stark terms, and it's grim reading, isn't it? God gifts us his righteousness. Close by sharing with you some verses Paul writes to the Corinthians. Give us hope. Even in the midst of the challenge of having to be honest about how bad things have really become for us. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 16, he says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him 
we might become the righteousness of God. What should we do at the end of a passage like this? Well, firstly, to confess, to own our sin, to own our rebellion. Secondly, to repent of it, to turn away from it. Thirdly, to believe in what Christ has done and to receive his grace and to share it. Why don't we pray? (coughs) Sorry. Father, as we read these words, it's, it's challenging because it's exposing. And if we were to be honest, we would recognize a good amount of ourselves in places here. And it's not easy to see just how, how bad things are apart from you. But Lord, I thank you that the good news is that even in light of our unrighteousness, you have granted us through Christ opportunity to be made righteous. That all of that sin there described in such bleak terms, in such serious terms, might be loaded upon to your son. And all that wrath that is revealed against unrighteousness and ungodliness, doing wrong things, but also just turning our hands against you, you would place upon your son. The one who had never done that. Who had only ever done what was good, what was right, what was perfect. Only ever been faithful to you. That he might face the wrath the just wrath for our sin. But he also might gift us his perfection in our place. We thank you that the hope of the gospel is not to be free to be who I really am, but to be freed from who I really am, to be who you always made us to be, to be your children, to be made righteous. Father, I pray that above all this morning we might leave with that sense of security and confidence in the gospel that no, by our own hands we stand guilty but in Christ we stand next to you, your children, beloved. And Spirit, I pray for any who are needing that reassurance this morning of that of the extent of your grace in the light of our sin, that you might grant that. And Lord, if there are those who have not yet come to that place of coming to the end of themselves and placing faith in your finished work, then Spirit, I pray you might help them to have that moment that they may come to a place of placing all their trust in you. Spirit, we thank you that the message doesn't, though it exposes us, it doesn't condemn us. To the contrary, it just pushes us to again look to you, Jesus, and thank you for all that you are and all that you've done. We thank you that everything we read of ourselves here is not true of you. The opposite is true. Always righteous, always faithful, always good, always just, always kind, always pure, merciful and loving in nature. And because of that, you've given yourself for us. Lord, we thank you for the message of the gospel. 
And we pray that you would help us to have confidence in it and to walk in it and help us, Lord, even this week to be able to share that hope with those that you place us around. For our good and your glory we ask it. Amen.